The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. Genesis chapter 3, we'll begin reading in the verse, in verse number 1. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the, free of the, tr- uh, the tr- fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God sa- hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, that's not exactly what God said. God said, Don't eat it. He didn't say, Don't touch it. Verse 5, For God doth know, then in the, or verse 4 rather, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat." And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. And I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee, that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon the belly shalt thou go, and the dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and now shall bruise his heel. Tonight, I'm going to preach a message to you entitled, Hope in the Midst of Hopelessness. Hope in the Midst of Hopelessness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you now to ask your grace as I preach. Give me clarity of thought. Give me clarity of speech. May I be moved by the Holy Spirit to say exactly what you once said. Help me to hold back that which I should not say. I ask today that God, your glory would go forward, that if there's someone here that isn't saved, I ask that you'd prick their heart, bring them to yourself for salvation. I ask if there are those that are here that are uneasy about things in this country, in our world, that you would bring comfort. You would bring conviction where conviction is needed. You would bring chastisement where chastisement is needed. Father, be with us as a people now. Be with us as a church. May 
You get the honor and glory for everything that is accomplished today, and we'll give Christ the praise. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> if you believe that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. This uh, saying became popular in the early 1900s thanks to a man by the name of George C. Parker. <clears throat> Parker was a native New Yorker who became famous by selling New York City monuments and landmarks. One of these public places and monuments included the Brooklyn Bridge. Parker, legend has it, would sell the bridge up to twice a week. He told his customers they could make a fortune by controlling public access roads. Police had to remove naive buyers from the bridge as they tried to build toll barriers. Now, if you travel a lot, you go out west, especially to Oklahoma, you'll run into what's called toll roads. And you'd stop so far every so often, you have to pay a four or five dollar toll, whatever it is, to continue driving on the road. I thought that's what taxes are for, but apparently you have to pay to drive on the roads. Police had to usher off naive buyers from the bridge who tried to build these toll barriers. Other properties Parker sold were the original Square Garden, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, General Grant's tomb, posing as General Grant's grandson, and even the Statue of Liberty. He would set up fake sale offices and forge documents to support his cons. But after Parker's third conviction, in 1928, he was sentenced to a life term at Sing Sing Prison. Parker is remembered to be one of the most successful con mans in American history, but not the world. In Genesis chapter 3, we have Satan approaching Eve. We have Satan approaching Eve in the garden, and his goal is to get her to fall to his con. God has made it perfectly clear, don't eat of the fruit. And Satan's goal is to get her to stumble, to fall into temptation, and to partake of that fruit. You want to know something about con men? They always oversell. They always promise more than they can give. They promise you the world, but you get peanuts. They're notoriously known for scamming people and ripping people off. This is what Satan did to Eve in verses three, uh, 4 and 5 of our text. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. In other words, God is a liar. For God doth know... That in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. God is wrong. God has told you a lie. God knows as soon as you eat of the, true, uh, the tree, you'll be just like him. And he wants to keep the goods for himself. God wants to sell you short. He doesn't want to share. He's holding out on you. As Satan is approaching Eve, she's being tempted by the servant, by Satan himself. The question has to be asked, 
Where is Adam during all of this? Where is Adam? Well, Eve turns to Adam and says, here. He was right there beside her. In verse number 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. He was right there beside her as she gave him this fruit. <clears throat> this would have been a good opportunity for Adam to step up and reject the false doctrine that Satan had been feeding her. But rather, he himself embraced it. You want to know why families, children, churches aren't what they need to be? Because men won't step up and lead. Because men are too busy sitting on the sidelines letting other people do the work. Just because you're male, that does not make you a man. Satan is the enemy of your life. Satan wants nothing good for you. He hates God and everything God stands for. He'll do anything to see you fall. Growing up, my father and my grandfather and myself, we loved going fishing. We'd make multiple fishing trips a year. One time we went all the way up to uh, Minnesota. As we're out on Grandpa's boat, I learned how to bait the hook, learned how to put the worm on, learned how to put the little floaty white and red bobber thing on. The cheater's way of letting you know you caught a fish. That's what they called it anyways, but they let me use it because I was a kid. I'd make my cast out into the deep blue lake, and I remember feeling excitement as the fish would nibble, and you'd see, you'd feel that tug as the fish had nibbled on this bait, and you would pull and jerk the pole back, setting the hook inside of the fish's mouth. Looking back, I remember feeling bad for the fish. I feel bad that I tricked it. Like, who could resist a worm? Satan is a master at baiting Christians. He holds temptations right out in front of you, just waiting for you to take the first nibble so he can set that hook, jerk that pole, but he doesn't feel bad about it. He rejoices in it. He loves seeing God's people fall and sin. He loves seeing people get overtaken by temptation, by addiction. He finds pleasure in seeing God's people fall. He doesn't feel bad about it. But by giving into temptation, by giving into this con of Satan, you lose so much. It has caused this domino effect that has passed from generation to generation. This fall that happens in Genesis chapter 3, as we see Adam and Eve fall into this temptation. Now they had a perfect environment. You couldn't get much more perfect at that time than the Garden of Eden. So they can't blame the environment. A lot of Christians like to blame their environment. You don't know the home I was raised in. You don't know my work environment. You don't know my school environment. And it becomes an excuse to be able to sin or to not be held accountable for sin. They had a perfect environment. They had the very presence of God. 
They had more than they would ever need. But by getting what you want in the moment, you lose what you have been given. By getting what you want in the moment, you lose what you've been given. I've seen people commit adultery and cheat on their spouse. They got what they want in the moment, but what did they lose? I've seen people lose a spouse. I've seen people lose a family, all because they got what they wanted in the moment. I've seen people consumed by drugs, and they lose their minds. Grown people, I think of people right now, I could give you first and last names, who have been given over to the addiction of drugs and have the academic level of a second grader. People get what they want through alcohol, but they lose their health. They get what they want through pornography, but they lose their integrity. You ask a young lady what she wants in life. Well, I'd love to get married. You know, you know ladies, they have their wedding planned out from five years old. All they're missing is the guy. Who's the guy? What's the guy going to be in a young, godly lady? What she wants is a family. What she wants is a godly husband. What she wants is to serve in her church. But all it takes is one smooth-talking guy to be able to take that away. You ask a godly teenage boy, what do you want in life? I want to marry a godly lady. I want to raise a godly family. I want to be in the ministry. I want to be a preacher. I want to be a missionary. I want to be an evangelist. I want to serve God. I want to be a teacher. It takes one poor decision to take all that away. There are people doing things they never thought they would do because they gave in to temptation once. It's an old saying, but you don't become an alcoholic if you don't take the first drink. If you don't become addicted to pornography if you don't click that first sight. But Satan has a conniving way, a convincing way, to get people to fall into temptation. He wraps it up like a Christmas present. It makes it look so good. Satan came to Eve as a serpent. She wasn't scared of him. She's probably seen thousands of serpents. She wasn't afraid of Satan at first. He came to her as a creature that Looked like probably every other serpent that God made. He didn't tell her the truth. He didn't say, God's right, if you eat this, you're going to die. <clears throat> this is the temptation that I'm laying out in front of you. He didn't say that. He lied. He made it look real good. He said, that's not what God said. God never said, God, that's not what God meant. You're not going to die. He doesn't want you to have it because your eyes will be opened. And you'll be just like him. He has a way of making things look good. Advertising for alcohol, it doesn't show you the after effects. It doesn't show you some of the roads that people have taken. It doesn't show you the addiction. It doesn't show you the people that have been checked into rehab because they've been addicted to alcohol. It doesn't show the car that's been wrapped around a tree. It doesn't show the family that's been ruined. It doesn't show the, the father that left his family because he had an alcohol problem. It doesn't show the innocent mother that was killed and taken from her, her children. They don't show you that. It's wrapped up to make it look good. Satan has this way of making sin, making evil look so good and enticing. Immediately after they ate this fruit, 
Their eyes were open. They were open, all right. They saw that they were naked. So, what did they do? The Bible says they sewed fig leaves together to try to hide from God. That's never been successful. We can see that here in Genesis chapter 3. Hiding from God, there's no one person that's ever been successful at hiding from God. But they sewed fig leaves together, and God begins to call Adam. So they hid from God. Sin causes you to do that, by the way. Sin causes you to hide from God. When you fall into temptation, you'll, you'll start to hide from God. You'll start dodging God. You avoid reading your Bible. You'll avoid praying. You'll avoid, uh, avoid spiritual discussions. You'll be, the first pers- you'll be the first person to leave church, but you'll be the last to show up when it starts. They were trying to hide from God, trying to hide their sin. Falling into sin, it hurts your relationship with God. He was calling them. God was trying to get their attention. And when it says that he was calling them here, when it says he heard their voice, it's not, it's not just that he was um, speaking. He was calling out. He was making noise. When it says that he was walking through the garden there, it doesn't mean that he was just walking. It, means, it actually means traverse. To traverse, which means he was searching. It means that he was making noise. It wasn't just this casual walk through the park. No, God was actually calling them out, searching for them. Telling them to come out. So they do. Calls Adam out and God approaches Adam. And Adam says, I was afraid. And I was afraid because I was naked. God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit that I told you? No, I commanded you not to eat. And then Adam and Eve both start to play the blame game. Adam says, God, the woman that you gave me, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Can you imagine the car ride home after that? You totally just like tattletailed on me to God. So God says to Eve, what have you done? She said, the serpent beguiled me. He deceived me and I ate. That was the first ever, the devil made me do it. Listen to me tonight. All Satan had to do was get Eve to doubt God's word. God said, if you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. And all Satan had to do was get get Eve to doubt God's word. Someone once said the greatest thing that Satan ever did was to get people to stop believing in him. And we're backwards today. These people, Eve has stopped believing God's word even for a moment and it caused her to fall into temptation. Now, Satan got her to doubt God's word and that's something that he's been doing for generations. That's something he's been doing for thousands of years, trying to get people to doubt God's word. Look at our society today. What about evolution? What about science? What about the Big Bang Theory? There's a scientific explanation for everything. So we've, def- we've taken evolution, and that is our explanation for the existence of man. We've taken the Big Bang. That is our explanation for the existence of the universe. 
That's how all things came to be. Here's the scientific explanation of how man came to be. God. God said so, and it happened. God spoke existence out into this open, vast, uh, this massive nothingness. And from there, we've got the stars, the planets. We have Earth. We have mankind. We have the solar system. We have other universes that are surrounding us. I love watching those videos that you start with Earth. And they're on YouTube, and you can kind of zoom in. It shows the diameter of the Earth, and then it goes planet by planet all the way up to the sun, and the sun is massive. The sun is huge. It expands outside of that, and by the time it's done, you can't even see the sun because all these other universes are there in existence. And through scientific study, we've been able to observe and see all the different universes that surround our own, that make up the cosmos. And Satan has gotten people to accept the Big Bang and evolution as a starting point for God's creation. And he's gotten people to doubt God's word. He's gotten people to doubt God's word over gender. He made Adam and Eve male and female. What God says about sexual relationships, husband and wife, one man and one woman. He's got people to doubt the authenticity of God's word and the historical events that took place because he got people to doubt God's word. People have been falling into temptation ever since the first sin committed. We've gotten so good at doubting God's word, and even Christians can be that way. We can doubt the things that God has said. So God kicks him out of the garden. You know, as Christians, we can play the blame game too. Try to not be held accountable for our sin. We try to play the blame game and blame other people for our problems. Well, if it's not someone else's fault, that would make it my fault. Well, there's a novel idea. What if we just took took our own actions and went with that. Admitted when we were wrong. But what they do? They try to cover it up. They try to cover up their sin, but the covering up of sin only leads to more problems. The covering up of our sin will only lead to more problems. It doesn't work. Not with God. God found them anyways. As King David committed adultery, he tried to cover it up by murdering Uriah. As he sent him out to battle. As they're there and King, Uriah, or King David is talking to Uriah. And he, gets, he tells Uriah to go home and spend time with your wife. Why did he do that? Because he just committed adultery with Uriah's wife. And he didn't want them to know that he might be the father. They told Uriah to go home and Uriah says, no, I won't go. My men can't go home, therefore I won't go home. So David does what any respectable king would do, and he gets Uriah drunk. He gets Uriah drunk, and he says, go home to your wife, spend time with your wife before you go back out to battle. And Uriah says, no, I won't go home when my men cannot go home. So Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. David is trying to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. 
as he gave it to the temptation, as he looked out and he saw her bathing on the roof. Nathan the prophet called David out on it. The sin was exposed. Jonah tried to flee God as well. He tried to take a ship to Tarsus. Ended up being swallowed by a whale. As hard as you try to cover up your sin, it will find you out. As hard as you try to cover up your sin, it will find you out. In Proverbs 28, verse 13, it says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. He that covereth his sins, his sins shall not prosper. You can't go forward. You can't progress as a person for God if you're giving in to sin, if you're trying to cover up your sin. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. That last half of that verse is just as true as the first. You won't prosper by living in the midst of sin. But yet we keep going as long as we can. Keep it concealed. We cover it up. <clears throat> That's what Adam tried to do. But you can't conceal anything from God. You might be able to hide it from others pretty well for a while, but be sure your sin will find you out. You might be able to hide it from your family for a while, but be sure your sin will find you out. You can hide it from the preacher. You can hide it from other church members. You can hide it at work, but your sin will find you out. Now, God is all-knowing. He is omniscient. He has all knowledge and all understanding. He's all-present, which means he's, he's omnipresent. He's all-present. He is everywhere at once. So why does he ask so many questions? Why is he asking Adam and Eve all these questions when he already knows the answer? God was not looking for information. He was looking for a confession. God was not looking for any new information. He was looking for them to confess on what they'd done. He was giving them the opportunity to confess. That's what God expects from us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A lot of times we avoid saying we have the problem. We avoid the whole issue of sin. We don't deal with it. But verse number 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We can play cover up or we can confess. As we look at the fall of man and the sin that would follow, the generations of sin that would come, it begs the question, God, why would you want anything to do with me? The psalmist says, who is man that thou art mindful of him? God, out of all of our iniquities, all of our sin, all of our, our, for, for, uh, our fallen state, in our fallen state, why would you want anything to do with us? Knowing who I am, knowing of my sinful tendencies and my sinful nature, knowing as what has happened to us as a society, from generation to generation to generation, the impurity has gone, gone, and gone. The iniquity has fallen through every generation. Why would God want anything to do with man? Why would God want anything to do with me? Why would God want anything to do with you? But in the very chapter 
where the fall of man occurs, we are introduced to man's only hope. The very chapter where the fall of man occurs, we are introduced to man's only hope. Now, I'm going to give you my third point here in a second, but I am breaking homiletical rules by doing this. I made it very short. I want you to have a long thought of your, your point there. And I also made it very simple, on purpose. Point number three, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. See, as Christians, we like to make things complicated. We like to play psychiatrists and try to analyze everything. No, you need God. As, as, as the world has progressed and has tried to, to find all the solutions to all of its problems, you can put drug addicts inside of a rehab home, but without Christ, guess what? They're not rehabilitated. You've just pushed off the symptoms. You've just put a temporary fix. You put a Band-Aid on an open wound and it won't close. Jesus has always been the answer. Read Genesis 3, chapter 15 with me. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. We have the first prophecy given in Scripture. We have the first prophecy about Jesus Christ given in Scripture, and it is given by God himself. He gives it to Satan for all people. The first prophecy of Jesus Christ, it is given by God. It is given to Satan for all people, for all mankind. God says, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. In other words, Satan, there's coming a day where you will be overthrown. Who came from Adam and Eve? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jesse, David, and Jesus. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Satan's seed brings darkness, brings condemnation, it brings temptation, it brings fornication. The seed that is talking about here from Eve will be Jesus Christ, the solution to all the world's problems. Because Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Satan, there's coming a day by the name of Jesus. Yes, you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. In other words, one will be a fatal blow and one will not. But by bruising your head, Satan, you will bruise Jesus's heel, but it's because the heel of Jesus is crushing your head. The cross of Calvary, as Jesus Christ was, bled, was led there after he was beaten, he was hung there, he bled, and he died, and in ending death, ending the condemnation, Fulfills, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. As the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah talked about the coming Messiah. The Old, prophet, the Old Testament prophets, as they prophesied of Jesus Christ. Leading up to this moment on the cross of Calvary with Jesus Christ, he said, it is finished. Pointing back to the prophecy that his father made in the garden to Satan. It is finished. Fulfilling the prophecies that the prophets foretold in the Old Testament. It is finished. Sin had had its reign. Satan was rampant, but God said, no, 
There's coming a day where one will come through the seed of Abraham and Isaac, through David. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's, it, it means the Messiah. But it's not just a general term for Messiah. It means the, the specific Messiah that the Old Testament prophets foretold. Specifically, talk, specifically talking about the Messiah that Jeremiah talked about in the New Testament, coming to the New Testament, being the New Testament, being the New Covenant. covenant. Isaiah talking about the lamb that was being led to the slaughter. As the Old Testament prophets foretold this, Jesus was fulfilling it. As he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. He was putting an end to Satan's tyranny. He was putting an end to any doubt in Satan's mind. As he rose from the grave, we know the story. They take him down and they put him in the grave. And they lay him there for three days. He left his father's throne above. So infinite. His grace emptied himself but all but, uh, of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless grace. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 calls Jesus the last Adam. Now as I was looking at this, I, I, before I got to this passage, I was, in my mind I called Christ the second Adam. But he doesn't call him that. He calls him the last Adam. See, if he was called the second Adam... There would be room for a third or a fourth, but no. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 calls Christ the last Adam, mending what Adam and Eve had broken. In other words, there's nothing else that has to be done in order for salvation's plan to be fulfilled. It was done on the cross of Calvary as Jesus Christ took your place and took your sin on his shoulders. When Jesus Christ cried, it is finished, it was putting an end to Satan, an end to death. We have God telling Satan thousands of years in advance, you're finished. When Jesus cried, it is finished, it was the fulfillment of that prophecy. That's what Christ said as he was on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. We have a pivotal chapter in Genesis here, chapter 3, as sin was introduced into the world. As the pain and the suffering occurs. But in that very same chapter, we have the hope of Jesus Christ. They didn't know what it was going to look like at the time. Satan didn't know what it was going to look like at the time. Adam and Eve didn't know what it was going to look like at the time. The Old Testament prophets didn't know what it was going to look like at the time. But God knew. <clears throat> he knew that Jesus Christ was going to be the hope of the world. So why do Christians walk around like they have no hope? Is it because we've put our trust and our faith in a man? Is it because we've put our trust and our faith in a cure? What is your faith in tonight? Who are you trusting? Deep down in your heart, who are you relying on? Is it self-effort? If it's self-effort... It's not going to work out. When Jesus died on the cross, he did it for all mankind. 
and he did it so that you would not have to face that judgment. The judgment had to go somewhere. Can the lost pay for their sins? Yes, a lost man can pay for his sins, but it'll take an eternity in a place called hell. The Bible says that God has spelled out his wrath that day as Jesus was on the cross. The wrath, the judgment of God, it had to go somewhere. It couldn't just be ignored. The fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, it couldn't be ignored. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us that Christ was a propitiation of our sin. He was, took our place. See, as a lost man stands before God at the judgment, he's going to say, what did you rely on? Where's your faith? Well, it was, I did everything I could. I did all the right things. I said all the right things. I tried to be the best person that I could. He's going to cast him into hell. And the judgment will be expelled on that individual for the rest of eternity because they didn't accept Christ. When a Christian stands before God and God asks, where was your faith? What are you relying on? They say Christ. They are. The judgment bypasses them because that judgment was already expelled on Christ on the cross. The judgment had to go somewhere. You and I have the hope and the assurance of salvation, but a lot of times I, feel, I fear that that's where it ends in some people's hearts. And they're living their lives like they have no hope. They're living their lives like they have no purpose. And we walk around with our heads down because circumstances. Maybe God is trying our faith. Maybe God is trying your faith because he wants you to learn how to trust him more. See, we've Americanized our Christianity where everything is comfortable. We've Americanized our Christianity where everything is supposed to be just easy. We've turned Christianity into this showboat of comfort and having a good time. Nothing bad should ever happen. Maybe God wants us to trust him a little bit more. Maybe God is letting us go through a hard time. Maybe God's, I don't know what the situation is, maybe God's letting you go through a hard time because he wants you to learn to trust him more. The world is living in fear. Christians ought not to live in fear. <clears throat> Society is living in fear. The church ought not to live in fear. A.W. Tozer said, a scared world needs a fearless church. A scared world needs a fearless church. And there's a lot of people that are afraid right now. There's a lot of people that are feeling fear. There's a lot of people that don't know where to go or where to turn. We are the church. We are the light of the world. Jesus tells us that in the book of Matthew. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Go be a light. It's sad when Christians sit in church and they can't remember the last time they read their Bible. I can't remember the last time they prayed, and I'm not talking about pastor calls on you to pray in church or we're going to pray before our meal. The last time you actually got on your face and your knees and you prayed to God. When was the last time we told somebody about Christ? A scared world needs a fearless church. Let's be fearless. Let's live our lives as Grace Baptist Church, facing the world head on, taking the word of God's in our hands. I love that song we sang, Vision Sunday. God's word will stand. 
What has happened to a nation that used to fear the Lord? What has happened to a nation that used to fear the Lord? God's word will stand. They can strip it from the courthouse walls, remove it from the schools, teach our children that we're animals, speak against the golden rule, deny our Christian heritage from the public eye. But here's one thing they can't take away, God's word. It's going to stand. God's word will stand against the raging tide. God's word will stand against the gates of hell. It is forever settled to evermore endure. It's the only way a sinner's heart could ever be made pure. It's the only way your heart made, was made pure. As you got saved, you got saved because someone showed you from the word of God that you needed a savior and that your sins were going to send you to hell. We need a church that's fearless, that is going to take God's word and fight the wickedness of the, de of the devil. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit of God on your side. Why fear? Our theme this year, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God's already said it. It's time we believe it. He said, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the world. He's already said it. Let's believe it. I will never, never leave you nor forsake you. He's already said it. Let's believe it. As we walk out of here today, may we leave knowing that God is on our side and that he's already prophesied it thousands of years in the past that Jesus Christ is the answer. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the time we've had together tonight. I ask that you would help us as we go our separate ways. Help us to be a God-fearing church. Help us to rely on you throughout the unprecedented circumstances, throughout any hardships, any hard times that we may face. Perhaps there's someone here that is going through a trial. Could be in their family, could be in their job. We ask that you would give comfort, but that you also would give strength. And that people would be comforted by the promises in your word. Help us not to lose that. Help us to take you at your word. God, there's people that are hurting. There's people that need comfort and guidance. God, help us most importantly to rely on you. Help us not to rely on self-effort or relying on the way that things used to be or how we think things should be. Help us to trust you in your plan. And as we follow you, as we follow Christ, as you lead us by your spirit, may we be a church that is fearless. The world has reason to fear. The church has no reason to fear. Though we face hard time, opposition, whatever it may be, God, you're in control. Help us to remember that. You've never lost control before, and you're not about to start now. Help us to trust you more and more every day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.